We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Hello and welcome, dear listener. This is episode 402 of the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. This is one that's pre-recorded, not done live on a Tuesday night. It's just me. No Joe, no Scott, and I'm going to talk about the voice and Indigenous issues because I've got a lot of notes and I just need to basically tell you the stuff I've found, talk about it, because I'd feel really disappointed if it was all left on the shelf and never discussed, even though we've already done a few episodes on Indigenous matters. So this is going to be a long one. It's just going to be me talking solo. Hopefully you'll find it informative and entertaining. Right. The voice. Why should we vote yes for the voice? The official yes case is that it will provide recognition of Indigenous people. And secondly, that by listening to what Indigenous people want, we'll get better results and better outcomes for Indigenous people. That's it in a nutshell. First off, I've got no problem with the recognition aspect. Any clauses or amendments or additions that simply want to recognise historical facts about Indigenous occupation of Australia makes perfect sense to probably put in the preamble to explain how we got to the point that we got to when we sat down to write the Constitution. That makes sense. So anything to do with recognition, I'm not really going to be dealing with because I accept that recognition is a good idea, but I would also say that can be done without giving a voice. So really, the main argument that I'm going to be dealing with then is this argument that Indigenous people have not been heard, that the voice will provide a mechanism for listening that hasn't been there before or at least hasn't been as good and that as a result, there will be better outcomes for Indigenous people. So I've got a little introductory sort of bit, which will go for probably five or ten minutes, and then various ideas, various articles, various people that I'll be quoting. But I thought I'd just sort of give my pitch. And I'm really saying this not because I am actually have a strong desire to convince you one way or another. It's just more for my own benefit. And... It's also just to add to the kit bag of knowledge that listeners have about the topic. And if you choose to come to a different conclusion to me, I'm not particularly offended, to tell you the truth. So, yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a, a preacher for this. I'm just analysing what I see and stating what I see without a, without a strong compulsion It might seem that that's not the case as we go on, but in any event, that's where I'm coming from. All right. So here's my introductory remarks. So the yes vote argues that Indigenous people have not been heard. The voice is a way of ensuring they are heard. And if they are heard, then better outcomes will follow. I think that's a fair summary. 
I say that is not correct. I say that Indigenous people have been heard. Governments have consulted with Indigenous stakeholders on numerous problems, but those problems remain unsolved. It's actually insulting to thousands of good people working for decades in the Department of Aboriginal Affairs and other departments to suggest they have been implementing programs without consulting Indigenous stakeholders. It insults well-meaning ministers and staff to suggest they are so stupid, biased or lazy that they haven't consulted Indigenous opinion. We'll talk about the history in a moment, but since 1973 there have been five national Indigenous bodies advising Australian governments. Indigenous people are overrepresented in our federal parliament. And as different topics have been raised with me and I've investigated the background to them, I've been impressed by the level of consultation in various reports. I, th- I think the people who are alleging that Indigenous people have not been heard really should have placed caveats. I think they should have been more careful with their words. You know, the thousands of people who have worked to try and help Indigenous people that they haven't been consulting, it's, it's like a giant conspiracy in a sense. Or are we not supposed to really take it seriously? Oh, there has been some consultation, but not good enough. Or, well, then say that. But very often it's a blanket statement. We Indigenous people have not been heard. It's a nonsense. So when Noel Pearson says we have not been heard, an empathetic response is to look at the outcomes and assume he is correct. But he is not. So what does it mean? It means despite Indigenous advice, the problems persist. So something else is needed. So that's the conclusion I come to. Despite Indigenous advice, the problems persist. How could Indigenous advice fail so badly? Well, you should not put oil industry executives in charge of solving climate change. You should not put Indigenous culture warriors in charge of solving a problem which requires cultural change. We'll get to that. If Indigenous people are to thrive in a modern 21st century first world community, then they need to embrace that community and drop cultural impediments that prevent proper participation. So I'm not saying that People have to assimilate and become Western and drop everything. But I am saying that if you want to compare Indigenous communities to the rest of Australia, you're not really comparing apples with apples. You're comparing two different communities. You should be surprised if there are not differences. Indigenous advocates have failed to recommend that there are problems with cultural impediments. The voice will not recommend changing culture. Programs will continue to fail 
until cultural roadblocks are recognised and discarded. I'll get on to some of those. To repeat, I'm not saying people have to assimilate, but if you want to measure closing the gap by comparing Indigenous outcomes with mainstream outcomes, you're not comparing apples with apples until the Indigenous community joins the mainstream. At this point, yes, voters would argue that the voice will at least provide more information, and that can't be bad. Even if things are unlikely to prove, they might improve, so why not try it? And my answer to that is because the voice encourages racism. It promotes racial thinking. It divides our community by the social construct of race. It is divisive. Now, that's bad enough as a general characteristic, but that promotion of racial difference makes closing the gap even harder. Promoting racial difference to help solve closing the gap is like throwing fuel on a fire that you're trying to extinguish. So the voice, I say, imagines a consultation problem that isn't there and promotes a racially divisive solution that is harmful to our entire society and is especially harmful to those Indigenous people needing cultural change to solve their problem. I'm a bit saddened by the calibre of debate. Yes, advocates who promote a racially divisive policy accuse no voters of Orwellian doublespeak when it is the yes advocates who are guilty of doublespeak. This is a proposal that's giving special lobbying rights to a racial group. Now, some of those members of that group might be suffering terrible poverty in other circumstances, but this is a right to lobby based on race. Just because you feel sorry for a group doesn't mean you give them whatever they want. I understand people's empathy. I understand people looking at remote, poor communities and thinking, let's just do something, anything. Let's try it even if it probably won't work. Let's just give it a go. But just because you feel sorry for a group doesn't mean you give them whatever they want. How did that work out with the Jews and the State of Israel? Yes, advocates abhor racism, but often resort to promoting racial difference when justifying their yes vote. It's incredible to me that these people who are critical of racism rely on racism to promote their ideas. Ideas such as Aboriginal people have a special attachment to the land. Indigenous people carry within them a cultural history of 60,000 years. Indigenous people inherit the pain and trauma of their ancestors. Indigenous people know what is best for Indigenous people, as if they all think the same. These are often described as biologically inherited traits as opposed to cultural practices. The wording may not always be that explicit, but it's implied. There's a lot of woo thrown in with this stuff. There's a lot of inherent characteristics ascribed to Indigenous people. These ideas are laced with racism, yet yes, advocates can't see it. 
I highly value universal rights. Equal rights are important to me. When Christians want special privileges or special exemptions, I say, no, you all share the same rights. You don't get special rights just because you're a member of a cultural group. And in a previous episode, I gave the example of a thought experiment of an Islamic voice to parliament. I said perhaps they too could prove a form of racism or xenophobia. Higher incarceration rates for Muslims, poorer income, poorer health outcomes. They too could claim they're not heard and need a voice. And in countering the call for an Islamic voice, I'd be able to say, no, we have an equal rights policy here, no special lobbying rights for cultural or religious groups. Yes, advocates for the Indigenous cause, if ethically consistent, couldn't say that. Because really, if you're voting yes, you're saying cultural groups can get special rights if things are bad enough. All a yes advocate could say to a proposed Islamic voice is, your outcomes at the moment aren't bad enough to justify this. Now, this isn't said as a slippery slope argument. There's no call for an Islamic voice, and I don't think there will be. It's a hypothetical case to demonstrate the principle of consistent ethical and moral positions. So I don't say do nothing. There are better solutions. I'm happy to spend triple, quadruple, whatever amount of money is necessary on poor Indigenous communities to help them get ahead. I say we should focus on class, not race. Many black American leaders would agree with me. I'll be talking about that. I say we need experts on poverty, not race. If this voice to Parliament was to be made up of experts on on getting people out of poverty, social science experts, other experts regardless of colour. I might be more inclined to agree to it, but this, this assumption that people of a certain race know what's best for a certain race is a racist idea. It assumes people think the same. Imagine if I tried to speak on behalf of all white people, as if all white people think the same. A big part of the problem is maintaining traditional cultural lifestyles in remote locations. We need experts on changing culture, not experts on maintaining cultural purity. There we go. That was the initial blurb. Let's talk about some history so we've got some context for all of this. Since 1973, there have been five national Indigenous bodies advising Australian governments. Four were elected and one was appointed. I'm getting all this from Wikipedia, by the way. 1973 to 1976, we had the NACC, the National Aboriginal Consultative Committee. What are we in now, dear listener? So that was that was 50 years ago. Was the first of the National Indigenous Advisory Bodies, created by the Whitlam Government. Its principal function was to advise the Department of Aboriginal Affairs and the Minister on issues of concern to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. That, to me, 
is a perfectly sensible committee to have. Advising the government on Indigenous affairs, directly advising the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs. Perfectly fine. The NACC saw itself as a legislative body, while the government expected them to be purely advisory. And this, along with other conflicts, led to the end of the organisation. And uh, the Fraser government concluded it hadn't functioned as a consultative committee and had not been effective in providing advice or making its activities known to most Aboriginal people. In 1977, we then had the NACC reconstituted as the National Aboriginal Congress, the NAC. And this had indirect voting of members and a more explicit advisory role. Hawke government commissioned the Coombs Review, which found the body was not held in high regard by Aboriginal communities, and it was abolished. So then the Hawke government in 1990, established ATSIC, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. And it was an elected body which had responsibility not only for advising government, but for administering Indigenous programs and service delivery. It was successful in some areas as being a combined deliverer of services. However, there was a low voter turnout for ATSIC elections. There were allegations of corruption lack of government support led to the demise of that organisation, eventually abolished by the Howard government. Howard government then established the NIC. An inquiry subsequently found that its members were respected but had no support um, in the Indigenous community. And in 2008, the Rudd government announced the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples and the establishment of a body independent of government. Fewer than 10,000 Indigenous people signed up as members to elect Congress delegates and the Abbott government cut off its main funding in 2013. So that's the sort of history of previous National Indigenous advisory bodies, some of them going back as much as 50 years. And surely in there we have had consultation with Indigenous people about what to do and those opinions and recommendations finding their way to government. Yet we still have what seems like zero improvement in remote Indigenous communities. Constitutional proposals, the next little historical area to cover, the history of constitutional proposals. So the main one I want to deal with is a joint select committee on constitutional recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from 2013 to 2015, which made recommendations in 2016. What did they recommend? Basically, recognise acknowledge and respect Indigenous culture, the relationship to land and history, put something in the Constitution to say that, and get rid of a couple of particularly ugly sections that were in the Constitution related to race. Repealing of Section 25, for example. Section 25 says, because it's still there, 
For the purposes of the last section, if by the law of any state all persons of any race are disqualified from voting at elections for the more numerous House of the Parliament of the state, then in reckoning the number of people of the state or of the Commonwealth, persons of that race resident in that state shall not be counted. <laughs> really, it's a section saying if a state decides to exclude people from voting because of their race, then we won't count those people. Of course, get rid of that section. Um, terrible racist section. So, and including a, a power for the a Commonwealth then to make laws with respect to Indigenous people. That was 2016. No mention of a voice. Simply, let's recognise history and culture of Indigenous people. Let's get rid of some ugly existing provisions in the Constitution. Slip in a provision to say, yes, the Commonwealth can make laws with respect to Indigenous people. No mention of a voice. I could easily agree to those recommendations. There's no special rights given to a special group in that situation. Michael Mansell, he's chairman of the Aboriginal Land Council of Tasmania and has been active in Indigenous affairs matters his entire life, it seems. I seem to recall hearing about him when I was a teenager and my mother complaining that he didn't look Aboriginal enough for her. What was he doing representing Indigenous people? That seemed to me something my mother was saying 40 years ago. He's still around. And what does he say about deer that will do nothing? Now, if you thought that Michael Mansell is part of the Lydia Thorpe camp, where basically he's a no voter because he thinks the voice doesn't go far enough and he wants treaty and other things, you'd be 100% correct. That's what he thinks. But he makes some interesting comments about the Constitution. He says, The normal process for friendly governments advancing the cause of Aboriginal people is through legislation. When Gough Whitlam wanted to remedy racial discrimination in 1975, he did not hold a referendum. He legislated the Racial Discrimination Act. When Malcolm Fraser wanted to give land to Aboriginals in the Northern Territory, he did not ask for a referendum. His government enacted the Northern Territory Land Rights Act. Likewise, when Paul Keating promised to shore up native title, he did not go to a referendum. He legislated the Native Title Act, 1993. Legislation is the normal way to change things. I'm still quoting Michael Mansell here. He says, The Australian Constitution is an agreement between former British colonies to form a federation of states with a national parliament and a court to resolve disputes. Its purpose is not to declare human rights. I agree with him. Think about it. Land rights is such an important component of Indigenous rights and it just happened by legislation. It's way more important than a voice to Parliament and it was just done by legislation. Any good ideas out there to deal with Indigenous people and improving their lot can be done by legislation Tomorrow. This is the Noel Pearson thought bubble that's just got out of control. He goes on, Michael Mansell. The proposal for a so called voice that cannot return land, raise a tax, have no resources to distribute or deliver no services 
He's not able to stop a racist law or even build a single house for the Aboriginal homeless means it is a shockingly weak idea. The whole voice idea has sucked many in emotionally. The Yes campaign uses emotion to win over well-meaning people. Think rationally. I'm still quoting Michael Mansell here. That sounds like me to some extent. Think rationally. How could an advisory body diminish racism or close the gap when a Prime Minister, State Premiers and peak Aboriginal organisations have been unable to? And he goes on to say that don't need another advisory body. There's domination by white people. He seeks in particular Aboriginal representation in every uh, in, in Senate. So don't agree with that, of course. Well, I don't. But interesting ideas about the purpose of the Constitution. And he also, in another article, talks about the voice isn't permanent. Michael Mansell again says, the pro-voice group claim that putting it in the Constitution will prevent any future parliament from dumping the advisory body. That claim is factually and constitutionally wrong. Putting the voice in the Constitution does not override parliamentary sovereignty, i.e. no parliament can bind another. Take this example. The Interstate Commission was set up under Constitutional Section 101, which states, there shall be an interstate commission, blah, blah, blah. The now defunct commission was dumped in 1950, despite the constitutional provision. The same result can apply to the constitutionally entrenched voice. It's not permanent. Dear listener, I haven't heard that argument from anywhere else. That's Michael Mansell talking about it. It seems legit to me. Um... Interesting. You could think about it and say, isn't this just like ATSIC or one of those other groups, but in the Constitution? If I didn't complain about the NACC, the NAC, ATSIC or the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples, then why complain about the voice, which is the same thing, but it's in the Constitution? My answer is it confers rights by putting it in the Constitution the right to special lobbying privileges. I view sort of groups like ATSIC as advisors to the department. The department would draw up plans, taking into account stakeholder submissions, but charged with acting in the overall benefit of all Australians. With the voice, we may see competing advice to parliament and the voice will only be considering what is best for Indigenous Australians. We're setting up a broadcast facility for a group who will push for racial advantage, which will undoubtedly lead to racial division. They're charged with just looking after Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, not Australians overall. So their advice to Parliament is going to have that bias. It's not healthy. So the proposal, we've looked at the history of previous bodies and we've looked at previous constitutional amendments. What are we faced with here? Well, we've moved on from the simple proposal of 2016, which was simply recognise Indigenous people, get rid of some ugly provisions, and put in a simple provision saying the Commonwealth has power to make laws with respect to Indigenous people. 
what we've got now has its genesis in 2014 in Noel Pearson's quarterly essay titled A Rightful Place, Race, Recognition and a More Complete Commonwealth. So that's where he raises the concept of the voice. In 2016, the Referendum Council released a discussion paper which included a call for an Indigenous voice to be discussed. This led to the First Nations National Constitutional Convention in 2017, whose delegates collectively composed the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And as the 2018 Joint Select Committee notes, the Uluru Statement from the Heart largely defines the parameters of the current debate. What does the Uluru Statement say? I'm paraphrasing it here. I'm using words in there. I'm just leaving a few words out just so that it reads easier for you. We, our people, when we have power over our destiny, we call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarada captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia based on justice and self-determination. We seek agreement-making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about our history. So there's a lot of we, Indigenous people, making a relationship with the Government of Australia. It's about a voice which will then lead to treaty and truth-telling. That's what the Uluru Statement's about. Look, again, it's full of racist thinking. It's dividing Australia on racial lines. So in a few years we went from let's acknowledge history, get rid of racist concepts and treat everyone equally, the 2016 version, to our people are different to other Australians, we have special rights and claims and needs. That's, that's what's changed. So we've got a special referendum question, a proposed law to alter the Constitution to recognise First Peoples of Australia by establishing the voice. Do you approve will be the question. Now, the proposed Section 129 does not mention that membership of the voice must be exclusively Indigenous, but that's been openly stated as a key characteristic and a key reason for creating the voice. So when I speak about the voice, I refer to... The proposed Section 129 combined with the proposed membership eligibility restrictions and the fact that the voice emerges out of the Uluru Statement and voting yes will encourage further claims for treaty and self-determination is something to take into account. It's not just a question of beware the slippery slope. It's the birthplace of the voice is the Uluru Statement. It's context. It is context about the voice. Let's talk about racism. If you're interested in race, there is a book by Augustine Fuentes called Race, Monogamy and Other Lies They Told You. Interesting book about race. It'll help clarify the idea that race is a social construct. There is no biological 
evidence of racial difference. We are what he calls nature nurtural. Nature, of course, is your DNA. Nurture is your environment and culture. So he says we are a synthesis and fusion of nature and nurture. It's just, just, just not a product of adding nurture to nature. What we think is normal rarely arises from some inner biological core. Rather, it's usually the result of experiences we've had. Grow up in a headhunting community and you'll think headhunting's normal. We are who we meet. Our social development, schooling, gender acquisition, peer group interactions and parental and sibling interactions have an enormous impact on shaping our schemata and how our brains and bodies respond to social stimuli. So the way you're nurtured can affect your nature. If you grow up in a, in a little contact society, meaning people don't hug each other very much, and are later immersed in a high contact society, you might feel socially uncomfortable. You will also feel physically uncomfortable. You will have a physical response. Culture helps us to perceive what is good and right, specific to our historical and social context. A cultural construct is a concept or a belief or a social ideology about the world that originates within a particular society and is generally shared by its members. So in the West, the acceptance of the nuclear family as a normal mode of social organisation, whereas in other societies, more extended families might be considered more normal. Cultural constructs are not necessarily stagnant. Things change. For example, gender roles used to be husband worked, wife, housewife, homemaker and mother. That's changed. That cultural construct has changed. It's normal for culture to change. Cultures are not sacrosanct. They're not sacred. Race is not biological. It's a cultural construct. The categories are socially defined. Anyway, that's a bit of an intro to race and the idea of thinking about race. What is racism? According to the Human Rights Commission, racism is the process by which systems and policies, actions and attitudes create inequitable opportunities and outcomes for people based on race. So... I say The Voice is a racist proposal. It uses race to determine eligibility to certain rights. It divides Australia into racial groups. It relies on the notion that Indigenous people share common opinions by virtue of their race and that only Indigenous leaders can best collate those opinions and inform the government. And it gives a racial group special representation rights. Now, ironically... The advocates of this racist policy often claim that their opponents are racist. Maybe they are, but it's not because they're a no voter. It could be a no voter with the cleanest, most anti-racist view of uh, how ethics should be conducted. Just a couple of sidelines there. Mentioned briefly, I'm uncomfortable with this idea that 
seems implicit in a lot of the conversation is that Indigenous people share common opinions by virtue of their race. Now, the whole idea of the voice is to gather the opinion of the Indigenous community. And implied in that is an expectation that on things that affect the Indigenous community. And the idea that there'll be an overwhelming consensus quite often in this. And I don't think that's the case. I think across the Indigenous community, there's going to be a much wider spectrum of opinion than people think. And that the voice, if it's being truthful in representing to Parliament Indigenous opinion, is going to have to say more often than they'd like, well, our community is actually divided about this because there's this broad spectrum of opinion. I mean, just look at some of the issues that we've faced over time. Some Indigenous leaders have been very poor. Anthony Mundine advised against vaccinations. Many Indigenous leaders were against marriage equality. Ken Wyatt is part of a government that, through reckless tax cuts, sabotaged the welfare system that many Indigenous people rely on. I'm uncomfortable with the implication in this of, of a consensus of Indigenous opinion. It smacks to me of a racist acceptance that all black people think the same. Even on something like income management, this came up as a topic where I was looking for an example of where the voice might have made a difference had the voice been in place and somebody mentioned income management. Looking at reports after that decision, communities, remote Indigenous communities that, that where that system was employed, are, are today 50-50 divided as to whether it was a good idea or not. So it's, it's an awkward thing, more awkward than what people are expecting to come up with an Indigenous consensus. And a lot of reports are often stating that these things are regional matters. In some regions, people want this. In other regions, people want that. I guess the voice can say that and say, in this region, people want this, and in this region, people want that. But I, there's, it seems to me there's an expectation that the voice will somehow come up with this overwhelming consensus of Indigenous thought that must be there. Now, the intellectually honest approach would be for yes voters to admit that yes, the voice is racist, but like affirmative action, gender quotas, etc., the ends justify the means. Just as discrimination can sometimes be fair, the voice is racist, but it's not unfair because it seeks to help a disadvantaged group. That would be the intellectually honest approach for a yes voter to talk about this. But instead, we get Orwellian doublespeak that the no voters are the racists. Saddens me, the level of debate. So, if somebody was to argue that, that yes, it's racist, but the ends justify the means, just like with gender quotas and affirmative action, well, do the positives outweigh the negatives? And this is a judgment call and opinions will vary depending on how you prioritise things. So I acknowledge there are disadvantaged Indigenous people and I want to help them. I believe there are successful, flourishing Indigenous people 
who do not need special help. Just on that score, in 2012, the Melbourne Writers' Festival, Festival, Aboriginal author Marcia Langton was confident to state that there is a growing Aboriginal middle class. Stan Grant said, We are now in an era where we are seeing second-generation Indigenous PhDs. There are class differences within the Indigenous population. So for me, the key criteria is disadvantage, not indigeneity. I don't care about race. I care about class and disadvantage. I think a lot of Australians voting no think the same. If the voice was to represent the lower class on a colourblind basis, I'd support it. True racists of the Ku Klux Klan type see racial differences as real, inherent, hardwired character differences. Those black people are different. That thinking was used to justify slavery. It's used today to justify inequality. Black people don't like to work hard. Black people don't like to save. These true racists see these problems are inherited characteristics. We've spent several centuries disavowing that notion. Our DNA differences are negligible. Biologically, we're the same. But now, via the politics of identity, the left wants to circle back to those differences. Your racial thinking in the voice is just encouraging racial thinking everywhere then, including from some nasty elements on the right. As Ken and Malik says, we live in an age in which most societies, there is moral abhorrence of racism. We also live in an age in which our thinking is saturated with racial ideology in the embrace of difference. The more we despise racial thinking, the more we cling to it. It's like an ideological version of the Stockholm Syndrome. That's the end of the Ken and Malik quote. If the left thinks it's okay to accentuate racial difference for positive reasons, then it can hardly be surprised when the right accentuates those differences for negative reasons. Reopening racial profiling reopens the door to racial thinking and racial discrimination. More by Ken and Malik on racism. Those who call themselves progressive or anti-racist often draw upon ideas that are deeply regressive and rooted in racial ways of thinking and that the consequences of identity politics and of concepts such as cultural appropriation is to bring about not social justice but the empowerment of those who would act as gatekeepers to particular communities. Noel Pearson in 2015 said this, At the moment, for example, we're characterised as a race and it affects our whole psychology, not just the black fellas, the white fellas too, because the white fellas think we're a separate race and treat us as a race and we see and we ourselves have internalised that. I think the moment we move to recognition of Indigenous First Nations, we'll enter a phase where race will just be a concept from the 19th and 20th century that we put behind us. And we, as blackfellas, won't have this negative idea of race about ourselves and hopefully the wider community will stop having low expectations of us. 
This is a concept I've noticed in Noel Pearson's writings and in Marcia Langton's writings where, where the rights that are being sought are for First Nations peoples rather than for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples because they both know there's no such thing as race. There's racism but not race. There's no such thing as the Indigenous the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander race. So they seem to want to talk about Indigenous First Nations, First Peoples, and basically the people who are here first and those who are descended from them as being a better moniker rather than Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, and that somehow this will escape the whole racism problem. I don't see how it does that. More by Ken and Malik on noble savage mistakes in Australia. As he visited Australia, and he wrote about it afterwards. The, ba- the debate about Indigenous peoples seems, at least to me, an outsider to take place on only two registers. On one hand, silence. On the other, a romanticisation of Indigenous life. It may seem odd to speak of silence in a nation where the issue of Indigenous rights is so prominent in public life, but silence can come in many forms. The affirmation of Indigenous ownership at public events has become little more than a ritual incantation that allows white Australians to assuage guilt without taking the action necessary to challenge racist marginalisation. Equally troubling is the romanticisation it has become the accepted truth that Indigenous peoples have a culture stretching back 65,000 years. Humans have been on the continent for that long, but no culture extends over such a time span. Today's Indigenous Australians no more have the same relationship to the spiritual tradition of dreamtime stories as did those first inhabitants then modern Greeks relate to the Iliad in the way their ancient forebears did. The idea of an unbroken, unchanged culture has a flip side that has always animated racists. It was once used to portray Indigenous Australians and other non-white races as primitive and incapable of development. Likewise, with another common claim, the Indigenous people have a special attachment to the land and a unique form of ecological wisdom. This too draws on an old racist trope, a reworking of the noble savage myth. The fact that in contemporary debates such ideas are deployed in support rather than denial of Indigenous rights does not make them more palatable. Still on racist ideas. In Queensland, we've got a Minister for Treaty, Leanne Enoch, and in this article, she stood by removing non-First Nations Department staff from introductory meetings. So when she has a meeting with stakeholders and other groups, she will say, who's the Indigenous people here? You will stay so that we can sort out our family and cultural relationships. And while we do that, you white people leave the room. And she says that that is a normal cultural practice for Aboriginal people. And she labelled criticism of that practice as racist and defamatory. 
Well, it might be typical Indigenous practice. We're living in a community where openness and accountability in government is important and we need to know about conflicts of interest and we need to know people are treated equally. And running that sort of operation prior to a meeting casts doubt on whether there are special arrangements for special people. This isn't open government when you do this. Now, she might feel that's insulting to Indigenous people if the white people can stay there. But in our culture in Australia today, needing open and accountable government with our fears of corruption and undue influence, with no, needing to know conflicts of interest, it's vitally important that such meetings are open and everybody understands where everybody sits. But she declares the people complaining about that to be racist. This is where we get to with Orwellian doublespeak. Well, that's ideas about race. We now need to talk about class and identity politics. Because what we've had over recent decades, dear listener, is the demise of the union movement and where people formally identified by class, working class, middle class, and fought for rights for themselves, for themselves and their fellow class members, uh, for the working class to get a fair deal, for example. With the demise of the union movement and the change of work styles, we've lost class affiliation. And perhaps because even when it was there, it just wasn't working well enough and people were falling behind. So people started resorting to their cultural, ethnic, religious, cultural groups for support and identity. And we've ended up in a form of identity politics as opposed to class politics. This is what I see the problem, one of the problems with the voice is I see things at a class level. I want to help disadvantage people regardless of their cultural identity. Whereas the voice seeks representation for a cultural group without any account being taken into for class differences. So, Ken and Malik, class and identity politics. The shift from class to culture is part of a much wider set of changes. The broad ideological divides that has characterised politics for much of the past 200 years have all but erased. The old distinction between left and right has become less meaningful. Old forms of collective life, usually based around class, have weakened. In politics, universalist visions have waned, while particularist perspectives gain strength. Meanwhile, the market has expanded into almost every nook and cranny of social life, and institutions that traditionally helped socialise individuals, from trade unions to the church, have faded. We live today in a more fragmented, atomised societies. Partly as a result of such social atomisation, 
people have begun to view themselves and their social affiliations in a different way. Social solidarity has become defined increasingly not in political terms, but rather in terms of ethnicity, culture or faith. The question people ask themselves is not so much in what kind of society do I want to live as who are we? The two questions are, of course, intimately related and any sense of social identity must embed an answer to both. So the answer to the question, in what kind of society do I want to live, has become shaped less by the kinds of values or institutions people want to struggle to establish than by the kind of people that they imagine they are. And the answer to who are we has been become defined less by the kind of society they want to create than by the history and heritage to which supposedly they belong. The politics of ideology has, in other words, given way to the politics of identity. People have lost class ideology. For some people, you look at the world today and the 1% controls 90% of the wealth, for example. Well, the top 10% controls uh, uh, the top 90% of wealth, whatever the figure is. Let's say it's top 10%. There are lots of people out there who would be fine with that, provided that in that top 10%, the proportions of ethnicities and religious groupings and race matches the general population. That sort of disparity is fine, provided in that top 10%, 3.3% are Indigenous and 2.6% are Muslim and 50% are women and whatever the necessary proportion is are, are queer or, or homosexual, whatever. This sort of thought of representation of my group must be at least equal to its proportion of the community without the consideration of, well, where's the community actually at? Anyway, I've digressed there. Ken and Malik again. Whites are seen as divided by class. Non-whites as belonging to classless communities. It's a perspective that ignores social divisions within minority groups while also racialising class distinctions. You hear a lot about the white working class, the white upper class. You don't hear about the black upper class, the black middle class. It exists. For example, he says in Britain, white working class boys, white working class boys perform the worst of any group in British schools. Then, as now, the picture was more complicated than the public debate suggested. Black pupils were not alone in performing badly, nor did they all perform badly. Three ethnic groups lagged behind, African-Caribbeans, Pakistanis and Bangladeshis. Three groups fared better than the average, Chinese, Indians and Africans. But the differences were not simply ethnic. African-Caribbean, Pakistani and Bangladeshi migrants to Britain have come largely from working class and peasant backgrounds. Indian, Chinese and Africans tend to be more middle class. 
Racism undoubtedly played a part in the poor performance of children from certain minority groups. So did class differences. So fixated, however, were academics and policymakers by ethnic categories that they largely ignored the latter. That is, the class differences. The 2000 Ofsted report, for instance, demonstrated that the impact of social class on school performance was more than twice as great as that of ethnicity. Yet it disregarded its own data and focused almost exclusively on the problems posed by ethnic differences. If we're serious about tackling the problems facing both working class whites and minority groups, it's time we started thinking of the relationship between race and class in a different way. Right. Talking about culture and identity and identity politics, I've got a description from Catherine R. Stimson. Identity politics is contemporary shorthand for a group's assertion that it is a meaningful group that differs significantly from other groups, that its members share a history of injustice and grievance, and that its psychological and political mission is to explore, act out, act on, and act up its group identity. My fixation with class over race. Many black activists would agree with me. We have to stop thinking about race and start thinking about class. Well-known black activist leaders like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X would agree with me. So Martin Luther King. I mean, his famous statement, judge somebody by the content of their character rather than the colour of their skin. Martin Luther King recognised too that equality meant more than simple civil and political rights. What does it profit a man, he asked, to be able to eat at an integrated lunch counter if he doesn't earn enough money to buy a hamburger and a cup of coffee? In 1967, he launched his Poor People's Campaign, telling a reporter that we are dealing with class issues, the gulf between the haves and the have-nots. More importantly, or relevantly, or just as relevantly, King was about removing the barriers of segregation and of having black people achieve equal rights. It wasn't about black people achieving or gaining special rights. Malcolm X, John Lewis, the chair of the SNCC, recalled a conversation in which Malcolm X talked about the need to shift our focus from race to class. He said this was the root of our problems, not just in America, but all over the world. I've spoken previously on the podcast of Malcolm X's transformation at the latter end of his life. Franz Fanon would agree with me. Franz Fanon was born in 1925 and was a hero of the Black Power and Black Panthers movement. But Fanon disagreed with those who promoted negritude, Fanon rejected what he saw as the trapping of black people within a fantasy carapace of culture and history. Fanon rejected the very idea of a single black identity. There is nothing he maintained to warrant the assumption that such a thing as Negro people exists, nor do all blacks have a single set of experiences. The Negro is not, he added, any more than the white man. My black skin is not the wrapping of specific values. His solidarity is not with those who share his skin colour, his skin colour, but with all those who share his ideals. Amiri Baraka, 
The poet and critic Amiri Baraka was a founder of the black arts movement. Baraka shed his nationalism for Marxism in the 1970s. He recognised the dangers of appropriating racial thinking, even for the cause of equal rights. He recognised too the importance of class in any struggle for equality and he came to realise that simply having black faces in position of power did little to combat racism or empower working class blacks. So there's some famous American black activists. Marsha Langton, she's obviously one of the most prominent people speaking on behalf of The Voice, her and Noel Pearson. She did a lot of work in, in describing how The Voice would operate. Back in 2012, she said things then at the Melbourne Writers' Festival that seemed to be at odds with her position now. Her thinking and her statements back then, just over 10 years ago, seemed to contradict her position now. So this is Marcia Langton writing in 2012. It's a fairly lengthy bit, I'll be saying. I have, the words I'm reading are the words she wrote, but I am leaving out some words in between just to sort of paraphrase, if you like. So I'm not making up any words, but I'm leaving some out in some passages just to make it easier for you as a podcast listener to follow what she's saying and to highlight the bits that I want to highlight. So... So I'll start now with exploring what she wrote as part of the Melbourne Writers' Festival in 2012. She writes, I want to explore in this chapter the problem of how to recognise Indigenous Australians in the Constitution. I am arguing that defining Aboriginal people as a race, as the Constitution does, sets up the conditions for Indigenous people to be treated, not just as different, but exceptional and inherently incapable of joining the Australian polity and society. Nationalist initiatives that have isolated the Aboriginal world from Australian economic and social life. In turn, many Indigenous Australians have developed a sense of entitlement and adopt the mantle of the exceptional Indigene, the subject of special treatments on the grounds of race. This exceptional status involves a degree of self-loathing, dehumanisation and complicity in racism. It is vital that Aborigines as a race must be replaced with the idea of first peoples. Dear listener, I'm interrupting here with my own thoughts. This is what I was talking about with Noel Pearson earlier and this is also what Marcia Langton is trying to say in that instead of using Aboriginals, Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders, which is racial, they want to use the idea of First Peoples, which is legal, if you like, in the sense of legal inheritors of land rights. I'll go on with what she wrote. This is Marsha Langton. What Andrew Bolt cannot suspect is that many Aboriginal people, including me, just as cynical and sceptical about all the claims made to Aboriginality or to the use, or to use the even more modern and meaningless phrase, by people raised in relative comfort in the suburbs. They cannot be described as disadvantaged. And unless you take seriously the racist 
proposition that one is automatically disadvantaged by having an Aboriginal ancestor and a trace of Aboriginal racial characteristics. Yet they are eligible for special Aboriginal non-government scholarships and special consideration for enrolment in universities. I have served on scholarship selection committees and I contend that economic disadvantage must be one of the grounds for selection and not simply identifying as Indigenous. It is nonsense to hand out scholarships funded by philanthropic efforts to people who are not economically disadvantaged. Being descended from an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person who lived before British annexation of our lands is not sufficient reason by itself to hand out money to people who make a claim to being Indigenous. This attitude of entitlement is poisoning Aboriginal society just as much as it is poisoning Australian attitudes to Indigenous people. Now I'm going to interrupt you with my own thoughts. I don't see in the debate that we've had on The Voice any nuance from Yes voters about class distinctions within Australian Indigenous community. About, I mean, these are rights given to all Indigenous people to lobby. This, it's always framed as the Indigenous community. It's never the poor Indigenous community, the disadvantaged Indigenous community, as distinct from the advantaged, well-to-do Indigenous community. It's a big part of my problem with this proposal is there's no class distinction in it at all. We're giving rights to Jonathan Thurston's kids, who I assume are financially very secure. Thank you very much. This is a big part of the problem. She's, in this essay, recognising how scholarships and whatnot shouldn't be granted to Indigenous people. Well, just, just being Indigenous isn't enough. It should be disadvantaged. I don't see the same distinctions happening in the voice debate. She goes on. The debate about what constitutes an authentic Aboriginal identity is so fraught and toxic. Anything from growing up in the suburbs with a family that denied its Aboriginal roots to feeling very spiritual are being touted as legitimate grounds for claiming to be Aboriginal. Not just Andrew Bolt, but also hundreds of Aboriginal people who suffered because they did not want to hide their identity, are fed up with this creeping postmodernist ideology of Indigenism and Indigenous exceptionalism. The key reason for our contempt for this lifestyle option is that most of its proponents, having never suffered racial discrimination, do not understand the need to be free of racial discrimination. So she's making the point there that just growing up, if you grew up in the suburbs with a family that denied its Aboriginal roots, she questions whether you can be an authentic Aboriginal person. She also talks about lifestyle choice. I know Tony Abbott was criticised heavily for saying ascribing to an Indigenous culture was a lifestyle choice and people held him down. Marcia Langton in this essay seems to me to be saying that for some people, it can indeed be a lifestyle choice. 
She goes on to say that, now this is back in 2000, our proposed bill to alter the constitution that we should put to the Australian people is as follows. The Commonwealth shall not discriminate on the grounds of race. And that doesn't stop the Commonwealth from making laws, overcoming disadvantage, ameliorating the effects of past discrimination. And she says, so that's like a fairly simple proposal that they want in the Constitution something to allow the government, to make it clear the government has the power to make laws that do discriminate if it's for overcoming disadvantage or ameliorating the effects of past discrimination. She goes on to talk about that to say that there was one problem that Noel Pearson raised, the problem of how to gauge the progress in removing disadvantage and thereby remove from legislation the special measures designed to address them once the goals were achieved. This is an absolutely necessary part of the puzzle. We must address this problem in order to remove the scourge of racism from the constitutional wheels of our social machine. So she's saying, if we're going to make provision for Indigenous people to fix the gap, we should put in there the mechanism by which that special benefit closes once the gap closes. She says it's part of human rights practice to allow for special measures that discriminate in favour of a disadvantaged group. But these measures must be temporary or the fabric of human rights law and its principle is breached. There is a growing Aboriginal middle class. The climb out of poverty and disadvantage is paid off for their children as well. And for these children, no special measures are required. They should continue to identify as Aboriginal. They should learn and practice their culture. But there are no human rights grounds for them to receive any special assistance, except in some circumstances such as disability. Don't see any of that in the current debate. She says it requires imagining the Australian society in which we see each other as individuals, each unique with a multitude of characteristics. Being Aboriginal in that circumstances would not be extraordinary or contentious or reason for hatefulness. She then goes on to quote Morgan Freeman, the American actor. And I've previously played the clip with Morgan Freeman. I'll just quote her first of all. Morgan Freeman, the American actor, explained in an interview why he hates the idea of Black History Week, even though he is on one side of his family, the descendant of an African slave. There is no white history week. Black history is American history, he said. She goes on. When you think about it, our historians and intellectuals should have reached this realisation without the trauma of the culture wars. I hope we can put this idiocy behind us and define human beings in ways that does not involve outdated and unscientific concepts and the prejudices that have grown up around them. can't believe you would write such an essay and then 10 years later be calling for a voice which makes no reference to class and disadvantage and gives broad lobbying rights to Indigenous people, many of whom have no special, are not suffering any particular disadvantage. But there you go. Here's the clip from Morgan Freeman. Black History Month you find ridiculous. Why? You're going to relegate my history to a month? 
Oh, come well, on. What do you do with yours? What, which month is Life History Month? <laughs> no, well, no, 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 come on, tell me. Well, the, I'm Jewish. Okay, which I'm month sure. is Jewish History Month? There isn't one. Oh, oh, why not? Yeah. Do you want one? No, no, no. I, I, right. I, don't. Right. I don't either. I don't want a Black History Month. Black history is American history. How are we going to get rid of racism? On stop still? talking about it. I'm going to stop calling you a white man. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you to stop calling me a black man. I know you as Mike Wallace. You know me as Morgan Freeman. I just want to talk about this. just want to circle back to the argument that indigenous people are not heard. We are not heard is the claim. We need to be heard. The voice will fix that. But we are not heard. When measuring the gap, everyone compares poverty, incarceration, education rates of Indigenous people, bearing in mind their percentage of the population. Indigenous Indigenous people are either overrepresented or underrepresented. Typically overrepresented in incarceration rates, underrepresented when it comes to high sort of income levels, for example. It's a comparison between, you know, uh, Indigenous people are, for example, 3.3% of the population but make up uh, over 10% of the incarcerated people. That sort of statistic is trotted out and with good reason. But that statistical method is thrown out the window when it comes to the voice and Indigenous representation in federal parliament. The 2022 Australian federal election resulted in a record 11 Aboriginal parliamentarians, representing 4.8% of all parliamentarians, which is higher than the Indigenous Australian population of 3.3%. So the first point of call in a democracy as to whether you're being heard is, are there people in parliament like you who are able to inform the parliament and their colleagues about your experience? Well, 4.8% of them are. That's a, that's a good rate of representation. Sometimes when you listen to these debates, if you came from overseas or from a, outer space and were plopped in the middle of this debate, you would swear that Indigenous people didn't get a, a vote is sometimes how it's described. So... What do we think those 11 Aboriginal parliamentarians are doing when they're in Parliament? What what do you think they're doing there? Of course they're going to be passing on thoughts of their constituents who will include Indigenous people. I have in the past looked for an example of an idea, an instance, a thing where Advocates for the yes vote could say, look, if only the voice had been in place, then this would have been different. We would have had a better outcome, given that the role of the voice is to notify Parliament of Indigenous opinion. It's really looking for things where the Parliament did not know what Indigenous people wanted when it came to a certain issue. And if only the voice had been there to tell the parliament, money could have been saved, better outcomes could have been achieved, 
pain avoided, happiness perhaps achieved. And I mentioned before that during the podcast, somebody mentioned the income management, which was introduced in response to the findings of an inquiry into sexual violence against Indigenous children in 2007. But when I investigated that and looked into it, reports that were retrospective were indicating that the Indigenous community was split as to whether they approved or disapproved of the program. And that's touted as an example where the voice would have said, oh, well, we you know, definitely shouldn't do that program. But depending on the community, that may not be what the community's opinion was or even still is. So a footnote to that report. By the way, dear listener, patrons get full show notes of all the articles and references that I'm describing here. It's probably going to be a, I don't know, it could be a, it could be about a 70-page document at the rate we're going. We'll see. Anyway, from this report, Evaluations of Income Management, and footnote 13. The report presents the perspective of Aboriginal men and women in the NTER measures from six case study communities in Central Australia, Wundumu, Alikarang, Kintore, and Hermansburg. It is based on detailed participatory evaluation survey of 141 Aboriginal residents in these communities. The survey questioned participants' awareness of the NTER measures, feelings on the measures, and the effect of the measures on them and their community. The survey included a self-assessment scale. The community surveys were augmented by 51 semi-structured interviews with other community-based employees or agencies, government agencies, and GBMs in survey communities. Additional data was provided by the NTER Operations Centre, Department of Education, Employment and Workplace Relations, and Centrelink. The research conducted clearly. The research conducted demonstrates clearly the diversity of opinion around the NTER measures across communities, as well as amongst community members resident in a community. Income management responses across survey participants were almost evenly divided between people in favour, fifty-one percent and opposed to income management. Gender and age were not significant factors in influencing people's level of support. However, income type influenced people's support for income management. Blah, blah, blah. After one of my episodes, I was emailed by a listener called Andrew, and he accused me of being ignorant, and he referred to my call-out for one of these examples of something that would have been different had the voice been in place. And he said that there was a $1 million wasted in Central Australia on a market garden. So I emailed him back and said, well, what's the story about the market garden? Give me a link. And he responded and he said, that there was a Zoom meeting with uh, a university. Uh, let's see which one it was. Anyway, it was a university. It was a panel discussion. There was an artist from Central Australia told the story. Andrew thinks it was Sally Scales, and indeed it was. It was held at Australian National University, ANU. Mark Kenny hosted it. 
various people on the panel. And so I found the I found it on YouTube. I think you might have sent me the clip from YouTube. And I'm going to play you now what Sally Scales said at the one minute and ten, one hour, ten minute mark of that, of that clip. Talking about realistic changes in a community, like I was 19 when our, our communities asked for food security changes in our regional remote communities. Now, the APY lands is 18 hours from Adelaide. It's nine hours from Alice Springs. Our food comes from Adelaide. You know, 14 years ago, an iceberg lettuce was co costing $14. A box of nappies was $48, and I'm talking black and gold. And that, I'm talking 20. And we asked to subsidise the cost of freight. And a minister chose to do a market garden in the remote communities. Now, I'm from a desert, arid community. We advised this minister this is not going to work. Her Aboriginal Affairs Commissioner said this will not work. She chose to do it anyway. She wasted a million dollars. We were asking for 500000 over five years. So in it, she says, I'm from a desert community and we advise this minister, it's not going to work. Her Aboriginal Affairs Commissioner said this will not work. Blah, blah, blah. So what Sally Scales is saying is that the minister was told it's not going to work and the Aboriginal Affairs Commissioner knew, was told, this will not work. That's the whole point of what we're talking about here is will the government know something that they didn't know before? So this is an example, actually, of where Indigenous people were heard. She admits they were heard. It's just that the minister sister it's just that the minister decided to do something different to what their advice was. Now, that's what's going to happen with The Voice as well. So this was hardly an argument in favour of The Voice. It was an example of how actually Indigenous people have access to the minister to advise the minister of their opinion, and then guess what? The minister will sometimes ignore them. That's what's going to happen with The Voice. This was not an argument in favour of showing how the voice would create a different result. I'm still waiting on one. Now, the same thing happened with Noel Pearson at the press gallery lunch not so long ago. And in that, in that, he gave the example of rheumatic heart disease as an example of an issue that would have been different, would have been treated differently by government had the voice been in place. And so at about the six minute, 55 second mark of that clip, he says, I've learned that listening makes it possible. Rheumatic heart disease is a scourge. Rheumatic heart disease is a scourge a disease largely eradicated in the rest of the world, but allowed to fester in the paradise of Cape York and the remote communities of Australia. At an event yesterday in Brisbane, doctors confirmed this terrible disease kills two Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people per week, young children, teenagers. 
and young adults in their 20s and 30s, they drop dead swimming down the creek or on the football field, sleeping in their beds at night. Yet when I searched Hansard, I found the local federal member of parliament for Cape York and Torres Strait ensconced in his seat for 26 years, never found time to mention rheumatic heart disease in our nation's chamber of democracy even once. He did for the first time when I mentioned this in this campaign. This is a problem only a voice can overcome to ensure people who represent us, who make laws about us, who determine so much about the reality of our lives, listen to our advice, blah, blah, blah. I thought, well, that's potentially the example I'm looking for, that this disease of uh, rheumatic heart disease, local member didn't know about it, and, or if he did, never mentioned it in Hansard in Parliament. Well, you do a quick Google search of that disease and Indigenous People Australia, and of course you find any number of efforts to treat this issue by all sorts of organisations. And it's not an issue that the government is unaware of and has done nothing about. Quite the opposite. So the government is aware of that disease in Indigenous communities and there are various programs with various success rates or failure rates, but it's not an example where having a voice is going to make a difference in the sense of telling the government stuff that they didn't already know. And a quick Google search reveals the extent of consultation, knowledge and programs that are already in place on that one. Just for your reference, why is there such a prevalence of this disease in Indigenous communities? And the answer is that it's, it's directly related to poverty, overcrowded living conditions where people get scratches and infections, multiple strep infections leads to this form of heart disease. So it's, it's really a consequence of poverty and living conditions is, is the issue. And that's why you don't see it in mainstream Australian society, but it is a problem in overcrowded, poor, unhygienic Indigenous communities. It's, a, it's actually a culture problem again. Just going back actually to the uh, story about the market garden, and I mentioned before that it was an example where the government actually knew the opinion of Indigenous people, so the voice wasn't going to make any difference to that. But I found a submission by Money Mob Talkabout to the House of Representatives Senate Standing Committee on Indigenous Affairs in Canberra, who were holding an inquiry into food pricing and food security in remote Indigenous communities. Um, Money Mob 
uh, provides financial counselling, financial literacy, education, and a range of other financial service supports um, to the Aboriginal population in remote communities. They're experts in this field. And you might remember that uh, in that clip, Sally Scales talked about the need for a freight subsidy. Instead, they got a market garden. What good was that? And we know what we need. It's a freight subsidy. Well, actually, according to Money Mob, it's way more complicated than that. And in this submission, which was to an inquiry on food pricing and food security in remote Indigenous communities, in particular, the remote South Australian community that she was talking about, they say this, while a lot of attention is given to the freight costs, there are many significant factors that contribute to the higher end price to the consumer. From our experience, some of the unique operating expenses of a business or organisation in a remote environment are higher wages and salaries, providing and maintaining housing for staff, training, retention and turnover of staff, and governance for boards. These are factors which are echoed by remote stores. And they make the point that if you want outsiders to come and work in these remote communities, you have to pay a very high wage. That often they arrive, find they get trained up, understand the lifestyle is not for them and disappear quickly. So you end up retraining people very quickly. In terms of local people, very difficult to employ and recruit and train local staff as well. Many Indigenous employees struggle to retain employment. They face a range of pressures, including providing high levels of financial support to extended family, which can act as a disincentive to work. They suffer violence and abuse from the broader community. There's also lack of childcare and balancing cultural and work obligations. And if they don't speak English, that adds to the problem. So very difficult staffing, huge levels of damage to premises and also theft by customers and staff. This extract from the Inpampa Community Store financial statements illustrates the impact of theft. As the community is relatively small and the corporation's turnover also relatively low, Outback Stores has moved the store over to the light model where Outback Stores is assisted by community members to run the store and to help achieve the mission, vision and nutritional aims as detailed above. When this was first implemented, family and other community members would go into the store and hassle and humbug the working community members which resulted in the loss of stock and theft. They go on to talk about the uh, actual percentages and amounts. They make the point in this report that it's difficult to explain to people that it's not just freight and that it's all these other issues. They also talk about governance arrangements. That's, it's often local community leaders who are in governance of these projects, but that doesn't help necessarily, and can cause a problem when people want to complain, 
but it would be divisive in their community if they were to. They also point out that the, their buying power is not like a Coles or a Woolworths, so they purchase through Metcash, which means they don't have the buying power of uh, Coles or Woolworths, so the prices are going to necessarily be higher as well. And they talk about poverty and cultural factors influencing consumption. And quoting from the report, Indigenous community, Indigenous consumers living in remote communities do not have the same shopping behaviours as consumers in regional, urban and metropolitan areas. Many factors, including persistent poverty, overcrowded, freely accessed housing and a concomitant inability to retain food in the house and the lack of essential white goods such as fridges results in many remote Indigenous consumers living day to day. In food purchasing terms, for many people, this means purchasing food from the store daily, sometimes at each mealtime. Dear listener, if you've got money and you're in this community, you can't go to the shop and buy two or three days' worth of food and stick it in a cupboard because people are walking in and out of your house all the time and just taking stuff. These are cultural issues affecting food security for people in these communities. And finally, in this report, it talks about the community gardens and acknowledges that these haven't worked. And I'm just quoting from the report here. Remote Indigenous residents we spoke to confirmed these observations. One noted, there was previously a community garden However, it wasn't used and eventually died or was destroyed. Another interviewee from a Northern Territory community stated, the community garden is maintained through the community development program, which is work for the dole. It is abundant. However, only the local police officer uses it to make his smoothies. A third person stated, people are too lazy to look after a community garden, harvest the produce and then take it home and cook a healthy meal. We believe what is labelled lazy is more likely attributable to the dispiriting effects of current intergenerational and community trauma, which can lock individuals and communities into a cycle that saps their hope, health and energy. This in turn can affect one's ability to make practical life decisions, healthy choices and significantly change their circumstances. So the picture painted by Sally Scales was that the land is too arid so a community garden's hopeless. But the picture painted by this report is that in some circumstances you can do it and it has been done, but people don't even eat their vegetables or salad items, even if they are there, to cook a healthy meal. It's a far more complicated and nuanced problem, food security, than what was painted by Sally Scales. And guess what? It involves a whole bunch of cultural issues, hard cultural problems, things where you need to say we need to change culture if we are to improve food security. But that's the last thing culture warriors will admit. I'm going to finish off. I've got various other notes, but in the scheme of things in Australia, the amount of time and energy 
that has been spent on this issue is like bike shedding. So bike shedding is this phenomena. It's like where they were going to construct some nuclear power plant and there's a committee that's reviewing the decision. And, you know, $120 billion is allocated to the reactor and people go, yeah, okay. And another $5 billion to environmental measures and dealing with stuff, yeah, okay. And then, you know, one of the final item agendas is, you know, the staff will be working there, an allocation of $1,500 for a bike shed so that people can ride to work and store their bikes in a shed and rather than driving to work. And you know, the story is that the committee then spends an hour and a half arguing over the type of bike shed, whether it should be a colour bond roof or how big or small it should be, whether it should be attached. All sorts of details relating to the bike shed are examined in minute detail, whereas these other big items had just sailed through sort of without discussion. And, and what it demonstrates is that People will talk about topics that they have some knowledge of. And people could all talk about a bike shed because it was something within their experience, whereas the nuclear reactor, they just, you know, if it was 50 billion or 100 billion, they just had no idea. So, you know, the debate on The Voice is a little bit of a bike shedding moment in that everyone can easily have an opinion and talk about it when there's a whole range of other issues confronting our society, like this government is heading us to war with China, is hitching us onto a wagon with the United States and the UK over an AUKUS deal that is diabolically dangerous for us, and yet it hasn't got a scratch of a fraction of the, of the discussion that the voice has got. And there are other issues in terms of, you know, economics and inequality in this community. People still think trickle-down actually works. But you know what? Foreign affairs, geopolitical stuff, economics, currency, interest rates, too hard. So nobody talks about them. But they're the important things. And we're fluffing around on on what should really be a minor administrative matter in the Department of Aboriginal Affairs. This is just typical of the left, what's left of it. I mean, Labor's not a left-wing party anymore, but the left as a movement can talk about voluntary assisted dying, abortion rights, marriage equality, simple things like that. We've got some of that up in recent times, but only because it coincides with a libertarian right-wing view of freedom of the individual. There's no hard intellectual left arguments explaining, promoting complicated, hard ideas that people need to get their head arounds. We just muck around with this voice rubbish. And I've done the same for nearly two hours here. There we go. If you're a patron you'll get a PDF that you can access 40 pages of notes from the articles I've quoted. That's all I've got to say on Indigenous matters for quite a while.
Talk to you next time. Bye for now. Dear listener, not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, wait, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link.